Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. When protests began earlier this year for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other black people who were killed by police, one of the things that came out of all that were these huge street murals, the ones that say Black Lives Matter in big, bright letters. They were in cities all over the world. But here in Berkeley, California, we found some people painting a mural with a different message. Reparations now. It's in a neighborhood that has a mix of old Victorians, California bungalows, and two-story walk-ups. One of the artists who worked on the mural is Edith Boone. She goes by Edie. I lived here for about 10 to 15 years in the next block, and so I really know the community. My children went to Longfellow. But I love living down here because you can come out on your porch, you can talk to people. Edie used to live in this neighborhood. It's where she raised her kids, where they went to school. And when she moved here in the 1970s, her neighbors looked like her. They were mostly black. She still lives nearby and comes back to visit because she knows everyone. I feel connected to this area more so than I feel connected to the area that I live at, only because I'm the only black person that lives in that block. The neighborhood is in South Berkeley. It's an area that's gone through waves of change and displacement. It was home to a lot of Japanese Americans before they were incarcerated during World War II. The black community grew in the 1950s and 60s. It was one of the few places in Berkeley where black people were allowed to live. But today, homes go for a million dollars or more. And longtime black residents have left because they can't afford it anymore, including Edie's kids and grandkids. That's something Masha Albrecht has noticed. Her house is right in front of the mural. Like most of the people we saw painting the mural, she's white. She teaches math at the local high school, and she's lived here for 15 years. So watching the shift in who goes by my front yard, who comes into my classroom, um, it's becoming extremely white. You know, I feel like I'm witnessing in, um, in math, we call it the point of inflection, like where your graph is really switching its curvature. I feel like that also is a form of violence that's not often described, where people who had built a life and a community and gotten to know each other's children, and then everybody's gone. That's one reason why the neighbors here are calling for reparations. They think that something should be done for the Black people who weren't given a chance to stay here. Erin Lay and her three kids also came out to paint parts of the mural. They painted the R in front of their house. I've taught my kids. I have three children, ages eight, four, and four months. Um, But I've taught them, you know, when they do harm to somebody, you apologize. And actually, the apology is not enough. You have to ask, you know, what they can do to help that person or what they can do to repair the harm that's been done. And that's exactly how I explain reparations to them. It's just, it's beyond the apology. Erin and her husband moved here about five years ago, and she feels conflicted about that. She's white, and she calls herself a gentrifier. We asked her what reparations means to her. It's figuring out what it is, and it may be money. It could be the government saying, you know, we recognize that a legacy of this is the displacement of black folks from our community. 
and we are going to build affordable housing and we are going to invite people back. This idea of paying reparations, it's been done before. Germany paid reparations to Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. The U.S. paid Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II. But African Americans have never received any payment for slavery or many of the other injustices they faced. Edie says it's time. I'm not saying that it's going to help everybody, but it will elevate their lives in a, in a way that they, maybe they wouldn't have. And, and then it'll give them more power to have more choices. People have been talking about reparations for Black Americans for a long time, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. But now, there's a growing and diverse movement of people who are demanding America recognize and atone for its racist history. Black people have been denied the chance to own land and homes, and in many cases, when they did own something, it was stolen. As housing reporters, we see the impacts of that every day. Black people are more likely to be homeless. They pay more of their income on rent and have lower rates of home ownership than white people. And that's the main reason why we still see a huge wealth gap between black and white Americans today. Across the country, more people are insisting that the time to pay reparations is now. I'm Erin Baldessari. I'm Molly Solomon, and this is Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. Whenever reparations comes up, there's always a lot of resistance and a lot of questions. How much is it going to cost? How are we going to pay for it? Who's going to cut the check? Those are all really important questions, and we can't answer all of them, because then this would be a very different podcast. But what we are going to ask is whether housing and home ownership could be a part of reparations, and whether it could help close the wealth gap between Black and white Americans a gap that's been with us for far too long. You know, it goes all the way back to uh, sort of the, the, the founding of this country. We reached out to Carolina Reed. She's a researcher at UC Berkeley's Turner Center. She told us, you've got to go back to the end of the Civil War. That's when General William T. Sherman issued an order to set aside 400,000 acres of land for newly freed Black people. It was the promise that gave us the famous phrase, 40 acres and a mule. But the promise was broken. And even after that, America found new ways to deny Black people the ability to build wealth. We've continually had policies and programs in place that have benefited white households to the exclusion of Black households. We spoke about the impacts of that with Andre Perry. He's a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Housing discrimination that was legal for so much of the 20th century, took away wealth opportunities and job opportunities from Black Americans. And, and that legacy still haunts us today. Look at the federal government's first major investment in housing. It came after the Great Depression. The government created low-interest loans through the Homeowners Loan Corporation, that allowed millions of struggling families to keep their homes or to buy new ones. But those loans, they were for whites only. And, and that was by design. That was because of the policy violence inflicted upon Black Americans starting in the 30s with the Homeowners Loan Corporation drawing red lines around Black communities saying that they're too risky to let out low-interest refinancing loans. That, of course, became known as redlining. 
And because black families couldn't get those loans, it was much harder for them to build wealth. Black families during the time couldn't um, rebuild or, or move to a better neighborhood or, in general, invest in their communities. The biggest boom in home ownership came after World War II. White families moved to brand new suburbs with the help of programs like the GI Bill. But Black people were left out of this new American dream. So when, you know, a lot of white households were able to become homeowners and start building that wealth and start sort of establishing themselves as homeowners, uh, Blacks were excluded from that. Even when Black people were able to buy homes and establish communities, programs like urban renewal often destroyed those neighborhoods. That's where highways and convention centers and subways were built, cutting off Black communities or flattening them entirely. Homeownership rates for Black families did start to rise in the 90s, but a lot of those families were unfairly targeted for subprime mortgages. These were loans that had predatory lending terms, uh, like exploding interest rates or no documentation loans, loans that were designed to fail. So Black families were some of the hardest hit when the housing bubble burst. The foreclosure rate for Black households was more than twice what it was for white households. And that furthered a racial wealth gap, which is as big as it's been since we started measuring it. Today, the average white family has eight times the wealth of the typical Black family. That's a big number. And Within that number is an untold, unaccounted number of stories of people who could not start businesses, who could not send their kids to college, who did not advance economically or socially because they, they could not own a home, they could not draw revenue from the equity in their home. So for Black families who weren't able to send their kids to college or couldn't start a business, how do we begin to close that gap? For Andre and Carolina, the solution is obvious. This is about giving people what they're owed at the end of the day. I really think it's time to be talking about reparations. Really thinking about how we can develop affirmative policies that can help close both the homeownership gap, but also that wealth gap. If reparations is one of the ways to close that gap, it has to come from the federal government to make home ownership more accessible to Black Americans and give them the same boost that white Americans got, starting with the New Deal. The same way we invested in low-income people during the 30s, we can invest in people who've been damaged by those same policies in the same way. Could be sort of a down payment assistance loan fund. And I think it's uh, investing in policies like community land trusts, where families have access to affordable homeownership opportunities, but the land uh, stays within the community and stays affordable over time. But it's not always that simple. Andre's research shows that when Black people do own their own homes, those homes aren't valued fairly. Homes in Black neighborhoods um, are undervalued by 23%, about 48000 per home, about $156 billion it adds up to. And that's essentially lost equity. Andre says to restore that equity, we need to change the way we assess the value of homes in this country and remove any form of bias. But look, you know, housing isn't going to solve everything. 
A lot of people we spoke to think reparations has to include cash payments, along with other programs that deal with education and jobs or access to business loans. Andre doesn't know exactly how or when reparations might happen, but seeing the millions of people from all across the world who are protesting for racial justice right now, it's making him hopeful. My goal is to ride this wave of uprising, of protest, because it seems to be the only thing to really produce change. It's not going to come from a bank or even a mayor or a governor. It's going to come from people who are on the ground, mobilizing, advocating, and demanding change. This is where it's going to come from. Coming up on Sold Out, the story of people who are demanding that change in an unlikely place. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Manhattan Beach is a beautiful oceanside city just south of Los Angeles. The wide sandy beach stretches for miles. Homes here sell for millions of dollars. Kevon Ward didn't know too much about it when she moved here three years ago. She just had a baby girl and found an apartment to rent. But she noticed right away that people would treat her differently. When you come into this community, you feel it. As a Black person or a person of color, you don't feel like you belong here. Sometimes it was a passing comment like when she was at the playground with her daughter and a woman asked her which family she was nannying for. Other times she felt silenced, like when other moms got uncomfortable when she posted about Black Lives Matter in their Facebook group. It was also like, you know, I need to see who my allies are around here because I don't feel it out here, right? And I need to understand if this is the right place for me to live with my child, right? Because if they're not people who think that this is an important issue to discuss in this community, then do I really belong here? When you look at who lives in Manhattan Beach today, it's mostly white and very wealthy. There aren't a lot of Black people here. But Manhattan Beach was once home to a thriving Black community. It was called Bruce's Beach. But the Black people who owned homes and businesses here, they were pushed out and had their land taken from them. 
It was the early 1900s, a time when African Americans were barred from hotels, beaches, and public pools. But there was a resort built to welcome Black Angelinos. It offered ocean breezes and a safe place to soak in everything Southern California had to offer. Rosanna Shaw is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times who's been reporting on Bruce's Beach. I just love all the photos that I found of people, you know, sunbathing, swimming, dancing. You see young Black couples posing on towels under these large parasols. The resort had a cafe, music, and a hotel to stay the night. They had little shops for souvenirs and stuff like that, kind of very Venice beach boardwalk. It was just so clear. It was such a popular gathering place, one where Black people could dip their toes in the sand and bask in their own slice of the California dream. That oasis was one of the only places on the West Coast that welcomed Black beachgoers. And that's largely because of who built it. A prominent Black couple, Willa and Charles Bruce, had bought two parcels of land, built a resort, a cafe, a dance hall, and transformed this whole area into a gathering space that was popular among Black Californians. The Bruces were Black pioneers. After saving money working as chefs on the railroad, they bought two plots on the shoreline for about $1,200. You know, a few more Black families bought and built their own cottages once this area became popular, and the whole community became known as Bruce's Beach. They were trying to take advantage of everything that California had to offer, just like everybody else that was moving here. Alison Rose Jefferson is an author and historian. She's been collecting oral histories from African Americans in Southern California, including people who remember the Bruces. When people were advertising or telling their friends they were going to the beach, Bruce's Beach, they didn't even say a location. They just said, we're going to Bruce's Beach, because if you were in the know and you were black, you knew where you were going. It was a very important place in terms of the beach because they had a resort. (laughs) And that meant that African-Americans could comfortably go to the beach in Manhattan Beach and feel safe that they weren't going to be harassed. But the city's white residents grew to resent the Bruce's success and were openly hostile to their Black neighbors. And they did other things, too, to dissuade African-Americans from coming down there. They put up one-hour parking signs. The signs were fake, but they were put up to intimidate Black visitors. Neighboring property owners put up barriers to make it harder for the beachgoers to get to Bruce's Beach. So all kinds of things they did to harass African-Americans who were coming to that area. And when that didn't work, the scare tactics became more violent. There was harassment from the Ku Klux Klan um, with a cross burning in the area. Um, uh, People's tires got slashed. But Mrs. Bruce wouldn't budge. You know, she knew what she was up against, but that she owned that land and she was going to keep it. And she kept it as long as she could. When the Bruces refused to leave, the city used eminent domain to take the land from them and from more than two dozen other families. They said that the reason was because the city really needed a public park, but it is pretty accepted fact today that, you know, the condemnation was racially motivated. This tactic of taking land through eminent domain, it wasn't just used on black communities like Bruce's Beach. Japanese Americans were incarcerated and dispossessed of their land during World War II. 
Mexican-American families were pushed off land in Los Angeles, land where they eventually built Dodger Stadium. At Bruce's Beach, the park the city said they needed to build so badly, it took 30 years. And the whole neighborhood was raised and remained vacant for decades. Three other Black families, along with the Bruces, sued for racial prejudice. The courts eventually awarded the Bruces $14,500. But the city made it impossible for the Bruces to move their resort somewhere else. So there was no reason for them to stay anymore if they didn't have this business. And so they ended up packing up and going inland in East LA, and they served as chefs for other business owners for the remainder of their lives. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Dwayne Shepard is a cousin of the Bruce's and calls himself the family historian. It's, it's been an economic and, and a social scar on the family for all these years, for 95 years. He says the Bruce's lost more than just their land. They lost a thriving business, beachfront property, generational wealth that, if calculated today, could be in the millions of dollars. Well, yes, I mean, that was our legacy. You know, that that's what would be paying for college educations now. Uh, money that would be incubating other businesses now, that that was our very survival. Dwayne and other family members want restitution for what they lost, the money and the land. But it's not just the family who's asking for it. There's actually a growing movement pushing for reparations in Manhattan Beach. And a lot of that is being driven by people who live there now, people like Kavon Ward. It started with a picnic to celebrate Juneteenth this summer. Kavan held it at Bruce's Beach as a symbolic way to reclaim the space. Soon there was a petition, and thousands of people signed on. Black lives matter here. This is a video of Kavan at a recent protest outside City Hall. We're asking for the land to be restored back to the Bruce's. Yes. We're asking, we're asking of them to pay the Bruce's for all they've lost over the last 95 years. And last, but certainly not least, we're asking for reparations for Black people all together. 
For Kavan, it's not just reparations for the Bruces. It's about restoring the Black community that was run out of town, that never got a chance to grow and generate wealth here. And so Kavan wants the city to put programs in place that would allow Black families to own homes here again. When everything happened with Bruce's Beach, Black people were owning in Manhattan Beach, right? You totally stole that away from that family and a couple of other Black families, and then you made it damn near impossible for Black people to own in this city anymore. So how is it possible for a working-class Black family to live in Manhattan Beach? What programs are you going to put in place to ensure that middle-class Black families are able to buy in Manhattan Beach, not rent? You know what I'm saying? What are you putting in place, Manhattan Beach? How are you making amends for what you did to the Bruces and the other Black families back in the 1920s? The Manhattan Beach City Council recently formed a Bruce's Beach task force. Councilman Steve Napolitano is co-chairing it, and he made it clear they are not considering reparations or restitution for the Bruce's. The issue of reparations for historic wrongs against any group of people is much bigger than Manhattan Beach and not the sole responsibility of our current residents. But they are starting to face up to this painful history, a history that's been whitewashed and ignored. We cannot fix or change the past. What we can do is learn from it. For me, that's what this task force is about, to recognize the past, learn from it so it doesn't happen again, and respect differences among people and viewpoints. There is a plaque at the park overlooking the beach, and it's been there since 2007. That came after the city's first and only Black elected mayor pushed through a proposal to rename the park Bruce's Beach. But the plaque barely mentions the Bruce's at all. And it certainly doesn't say their land was taken from them. So the task force will focus first on rewriting that plaque to make sure that most people know what really happened here. It's one step forward, and an important one. But for Kavan, Bruce's Beach is just the beginning. People are awakening and seeing that, like, wow, this is messed up and this is really detrimental to our democracy, is detrimental to humanity, right? Like, so... I've got to do something. I think more people are feeling that in their spirit. And so we we have to start talking about these things. Like, and because it then it also opens up conversations about just black land stolen overall. This is something that has occurred around the nation. You know what I'm saying? So it's bigger than Bruce's Beach. It start I'm starting it here, but I'm not gonna finish it here. These are really hard conversations to have. Even though the majority of Americans agree that racism and discrimination is a major problem in this country, only a small portion support the idea of reparations. When the idea comes up, I hear a lot of knee-jerk reactions. That wasn't me. It was so long ago. Why should I or my children be forced to pay for something that happened 250 years ago? You know, I get it. I'm white, and it can be hard for people like me to acknowledge that we still benefit from the legacy of slavery, just like Black people still suffer from that legacy today. When I went out to cover the George Floyd protest this past spring, I met a 23-year-old woman from Chicago named Destiny, and she said something that stuck with me ever since. We just want to be looked at as humans. We want equality. We should not have to beg to be equal. We should not have to beg to be human. Because of the protests, because of the way the pandemic and the economic fallout hit black and brown communities harder than white ones, 
people are starting to do something about it. California just signed a new law to study reparations, and some communities are going even further. Earlier this summer, the city of Asheville, North Carolina, unanimously approved a reparations resolution. It includes plans to invest more money into affordable housing for Black residents. And even that neighborhood we visited in Berkeley, there's a proposal there to allow people who were displaced from the neighborhood to have the first pick at new affordable housing there. We still have a long road to get people to agree on what reparations could be. All these conversations and actions, they might seem small, but it's a start. Whether it's a plaque, a policy, or a mural. Coming up next week, a radical idea for housing in America. One that flies in the face of how many of us think about housing and who deserves a home. The idea is very simple, that we live in the richest country in the history of the world, and we can and we must guarantee that everyone has a home. If you like what you hear so far, make sure you subscribe to Sold Out on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. You can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter. I'm at Solomon Out. And I'm at E underscore Baldi. That's E underscore B-A-L-D-I. Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America is a production of KQED Public Media. Erica Kelly is our editor. Jessica Placzek and Kiana Mogadam helped produce this episode. Sound engineering and original music by Rob Spate. And our editorial leadership team at KQED includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Molly Solomon. And I'm Aaron Baldessari. <laughs>